Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. In today's episode, I talk with the Brookings expert who recently visited New Orleans, ahead of the 10th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina striking the Gulf Coast. But first up, David Wessel's economic update. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. You're going to be hearing a lot about the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act in the next couple of weeks. It's a birthday party. President Obama signed the bill into law five years ago this month. It's the major legislative action aimed at reducing the chances of another financial crisis on the scale of the 2008-2009 crisis, which led 9 million Americans to lose their jobs and 5 million to lose their houses. The law remains controversial. Some Republicans want to repeal it, although they have little chance of success. Some, including some bankers, say it went too far and is hurting the economy, the flow of credit, the functioning of bond markets. Some on the left and on the right say it didn't go far enough. They complain that there are still banks too big to fail. And then there are those who generally applaud the thrust of the law, the International Monetary Fund for one, but would tweak it if only the politics would allow. So are we safer or not? Now, it's not a simple question. One, the banks are in better shape. There isn't any doubt about that. The Treasury says banks have added $600 billion of capital, which gives them substantially better foundations in case of another financial storm. Two, financial regulators have legal authority today to take over failing institutions that they didn't have when Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, and AIG ran aground in 2008. That's a really big deal, though the new mechanisms remain untested. Three, the delays in implementing Dodd-Frank and tensions among the many regulatory agencies underscore the persistent shortcomings of our current regulatory architecture. I mean, can we ever be confident that the financial system is safer while the regulatory structure invites turf fights and delays among agencies with sometimes conflicting agendas and inconsistent mandates? Four, part of the game plan here was to push risky activities out of the big banks with their government deposit insurance and effective government guarantees and into other parts of the financial system. But the migration of risk outside the banks, outside the perimeter of regulation, could create new problems. So regulators now are looking at asset managers and mutual funds and wondering if they could be the source of the next crisis. And they're meeting with substantial pushback from those institutions. Five, it's very hard to definitively answer the big question. Did we go too far? Some of the yelping from Wall Street amounts to complaining that they can't do what they did before the crisis. Well, yes, that was the point. We had too much leverage. There was too much financial game-playing without social or economic benefit. But some of the complaints sound more reasonable. There have been a proliferation of national and international rules and guidelines, and it's very hard to weigh the costs and benefits of the whole post-crisis financial reform effort. So is the financial system safer? Yes, it is. Is it safe enough? Have we gone too far? Maybe we'll be able to answer those questions on the 10th anniversary of Dodd-Frank. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. My guest today is Amy Liu, a senior fellow and co-director of the Metropolitan Policy Program here at Brookings. Her policy studies include economic competitiveness, metropolitan growth and development, governance reforms, urban reinvestment, and social equity. Through her work directly with metropolitan, regional, state, and national leaders, she helps address the most pressing challenges and opportunities facing our communities. Amy, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. I'm very excited to announce that this is the 50th episode of the Brookings Cafeteria podcast. I'm extra delighted that you're my guest here. 
Well, congratulations, Fred. Thank you. Um, let's talk about the greater New Orleans area. Um, on August 29th, 2005, nearly 10 years ago, Hurricane Katrina made landfall in southeastern Louisiana, just south of New Orleans. Over 1,800 people died. More than a million people were displaced to neighboring states. And the economic cost was estimated to exceed $100 billion, the costliest disaster in U.S. history. Soon thereafter, and in subsequent years, you became one of, I would say, the country's leading experts on uh, post-recovery New Orleans and the greater New Orleans region. Can you talk about how and why you became so involved in this particular issue? Well, first of all, being at the Brookings Metro program, um, it was really obvious to all of us in the program that when this disaster struck, uh, one of the... most important special major urban centers in the United States that we had to respond. And um, and we did it in a way that I think was really unique to Metro, which is we wanted to make sure that as every, all this national and federal and philanthropic attention uh, got put on the city and the Gulf region, that we used our data to inform investments and policies to make sure that New Orleans uh, recovered from the disaster um, stronger than it was before. And that's why we created what was originally the Katrina Index. That became the New Orleans Index. Uh, We did that in partnership with the Greater New Orleans Data Center, which is called the Data Center Today. And that partnership between Brookings and the local leadership still stands true today. And I'm really proud of the work, but I'm even more proud of the people and the community and the organizations in New Orleans. Do you recall the first time you visited New Orleans after this disaster struck? I, I've been to New Orleans so many times, I don't know if I can recall my first visit. Um, but I have to say that I went down, I think one of my first visits was when a group of scholars from Brookings, a small group of us went down, and we were invited by the Uh, Louisiana Recovery Authority, which the governor had impaneled right away to uh, um, organize the state-federal coordinated response to rebuilding this community. And so as part of that trip, we got a tour of the damaged areas from the Lower Ninth Ward to Gentilly uh, to see the broken levees, to see the devastation. And it is, I still have photos from that trip um, and, and they're quite stunning. Right. It must have been hard to see that. Around the time of the fifth anniversary in 2010, uh, and this was after two additional disasters that you flagged, the Gulf oil spill and the recession, after those uh, affected New Orleans, you wrote uh, that, quote, the city of New Orleans and its region stand out as a bold experiment in rebirth and reinvention. Now, you've just returned from a trip to New Orleans. How would you update that statement today? I think that New Orleans is still in the middle of a major urban experiment. Um, But I would say it's an urban experiment that is not so much just about responding to Katrina and the oil spill, but really is the great experiment of our time, which is regardless of any environmental or economic disaster like the Great Recession, the loss of a manufacturing sector, is how does an economic center, a population center, 
really continue to grow and adapt. Um, that's why we picked at the five-year anniversary a shift in the way we look at this issue. Uh, it wasn't just about rebuilding, but about resilience. Is New Orleans really, re- is it going to transform itself as a better version of what it was before the storm and continue on a more prosperous path? Or is it going to return to its path before the storm, which was a place with high racial economic segregation, uh, a proliferation of low-wage jobs, and a place that was not very sustainable in terms of, as we saw, the, uh, the weakness of the coastal um, borders and, um, and the wetlands to protect what is a major economic center. And so I think that the, this is a long game, Fred, and what we're seeing is enormous civic policy experiments and strategies underway in the greater New Orleans area to address all of those things, um, to, to um, create opportunities for black males and low-income people and low-skilled workers so that when they return to the community or stay in New Orleans, that New Orleans is a platform for opportunity for them. How do we, as we diversify beyond just energy and tourism, how do we create an economy that generates good jobs for all the people of, commun- of New Orleans? And then how do we build a more resilient, environmental, sustainable community that is a model for all places, not just the Gulf Coast, but think about all the hurricanes that hit up the East Coast or disasters that hit other communities in the United States or around the world. And so I think what New Orleans is doing is doing what most cities are trying to do, which is how do we create a more inclusive economy, a more robust economy that's going to be competitive in the long term, but do in a way that's going to be safe and resilient and environmentally strong going forward. And so just since you said I was just there, I brought, since this is a podcast, I want to dingle a couple things for you. (laughs) I brought from my last trip, thanks to my friends over at the data center, um, Mardi Gras beads, a really cute little um, bracelet of uh, high-heeled shoes. Um, But this is the, I bring this in part to say there's so much optimism and creativity in this community. And I would say today, going into 10 years, um, this is a community that doesn't want to be solely defined by the hurricane 10 years ago. I think they want to be defined as that really creative place in the South that um, can embrace people from all communities of color, all ethnic groups, in a way that's really fun, creative, inclusive, um, and just unique. And it'll, it's going to be, we can talk about the numbers in a moment, but I think that's their real challenge. I think that's a great point that you make, and I'm glad you made it. Um, New Orleans is a fun, awesome, vibrant city. I've always thought so. I was thinking back to the one time I've been there for uh, Mardi Gras. My wife and I were there many years ago, and uh, I'll just admit we did not drink a drop of alcohol. (laughs) And we were there on St. Charles Avenue, and we had a blast uh, competing for the throws and the the trinkets like what you brought today. So – it's a wonderful thing, and I love I love that area. And they want people to come, continue to visit there, and uh, be part of their community. And they aren't shy about saying, "Listen, yes, we had something really catastrophic happen to us. We also had an oil spill, 
but we're going to continue to remake New Orleans unique and come be mm-hmm. part of that. Terrific. Well, while you were there recently, what kinds of people did you meet? Um, what kinds of things uh, did you learn about uh, maybe specific programs that the region is undertaking to to achieve some of its longer-term goals? Yeah. Well, before I answer that, let me just say a few words about what New Orleans looks like today, um, because I'm sure that's on the back of everyone's mind. Um, you know, this is a community that has grown. It has uh, restored a bulk of its population now. I think it's only 93% lower than its population level back in 2010, uh, or back, I'm sorry, back in 2000. Um, it it has recovered all the jobs it lost during the recession. Um, it has more entrepreneurial activity and startups, I think, than in most cities today, and they're being recognized by that from magazines and other national outfits. Um, there has been job growth. So there's a lot, there's been investments in the coastal rest, in the coastal um, infrastructure, which I will talk about. So there's a lot of good trends that are happening. But want to be honest that New Orleans today is fundamentally smaller as an economy than it was before the storm, and it is smaller in population. Uh, um, the challenges that it faces right now um, is that there are um, there's more poverty in the region than before the storm. Most of that is because um, there's more poor people in the suburbs, less in the city, and because the population has, has shrunk, actually the share has increased. So there's more poverty uh, in the region than before the storm. And that tracks with a lot of the research that your colleagues in Metro have done about uh, the geography of suburban poverty. Yes, and that is a trend that is not just unique to New Orleans, thank you for saying that, but is consistent with what you're seeing around the country. Um, and they have had job growth, but what we're seeing is most of the job growth has occurred in the low-wage sector, hospitality, and so on. And a lot of the job losses have been in the higher-paying, more secure jobs. And so we really have an op- we're We're at a point now where we have to really think hard about um, how to continue to drive the right kind of growth that makes New Orleans a platform for opportunity to income growth for all its citizens. In fact, um, one of the things that Mayor Mayor Landrieu has done is created an opportunity network or task force to address one very specific challenge he's seeing in the community, which is that black males in New Orleans are less likely to have a job than a lot of their peers in other cities and even much 20% lower rates than whites and Hispanics in the community. So um, so that's sort of a symbol of the challenge they have today. But that is the reason why Metro Brookings was in New Orleans at the 10-year anniversary is to help them come up with some pot, continue to experiment with solutions around inclusive growth so that New Orleans continues to emerge from multiple disasters um, from a position as a stronger place. So um, what, what are we doing in the community? First, we are, uh, as part of the 10th anniversary, Brookings will be releasing an analysis in the next month or two 
that will show the city um, where the good jobs are for workers of color and workers who do not have a college degree. I think this is really important because I think there's a sense that we don't always have to put low-skill, low-wage workers or low-skill workers into low-wage jobs. So we are trying to find an affirmative place to show that there are good-paying jobs with benefits that hire workers of color, workers with maybe just a high school diploma and a uh, or less than a four-year degree. And there's real strategies for right. how to connect people to those good jobs. Like uh, in the healthcare sector, for example. I think there was other uh, research that y'all did mm-hmm. about sub-baccalaureate types of careers. Yeah, I think that this you'll find them in manufacturing. We found them in the trade and logistics sector, which still remains robust. We did find them in the hospitality sector, as you mentioned. And we also found them in sales. And when you think about how every office, whether you're a service firm or a production firm, you need an administrative assistant. You need an office assistant. You need a clerk. And those actually pay well. And there's real career opportunities in those. And so I think we're seeing a mix of production services jobs that I think are really good opportunities for uh, the workers in that community. The other thing I would say, Fred, is that um, 10 years out, um, I think New Orleans continues to be um, full of civic energy. I think that's been part of its strength. It is not a city that has a lot of resources. So this is a mayor and a group of leaders that have done a really good job of taking advantage or partnering with federal government and philanthropic leaders from all over the country to really undertake bold reforms in New Orleans. You still see charter schools being, they have the largest charter school experiment going on in the country. Every single school is a charter. Um, There are uh, still kinks in the system there, but I think that that is a great place to start and something to look at. And it ranks number one in the Brown Center's Choice and Competition Index of all school districts in the country, and the New Orleans Recovery District is the is the number one for choice and competition. Oh, that's great! I didn't even know that. There is real energy around coastal restoration right now. It's not. I think we have all heard in bits and pieces that the proceeds from the BP spill are being put towards coastal restoration. So two billion dollars of investments at li- from the BP litigation is going to be coming into investing in wetlands and other restoration activities along the coast. Um, and that's probably a down payment to a plan that the state the state Coastal Restoration Authority has that's about up to $50 billion worth of projects. Those are going to create jobs. Those are going to create real opportunities. And there's enormous energy right now no pun intended on the energy sector, but to focus on this water cluster, that how do we train workers for jobs related to the water and particularly around protecting the natural resources and um, barriers um, to ensure that we protect this important community and economy. What about inside New Orleans itself? Uh, what about the, the equity of the recovery uh, and, and forward-looking plans inside the the city, say, between the Ninth Ward and the more touristy areas? And we saw the Ninth Ward, a lot of devastation happened there especially. Yeah, I think that, like, we just all witnessed in Baltimore. New Orleans has the same challenges as those other cities, which is where the downtown, which was not actually impacted at all 
very much by Hurricane Katrina still stands strong. And those touristy areas are continued to bring in lots of new restaurants and hotels uh, into the area. And that's generated some, obviously, some job growth, lots of job growth in the community. But there is, the neighborhoods are stronger, but there are still a lot of pockets of abandoned property, vacant homes. Um, And for that reason, there has been a lot of effort focused on you know, land policy and, ho- and home ownership and building in that community. Do you feel like the coordination amongst these different levels of government and NGOs and private organizations is overall going well? Is, it, is everyone kind of committed to the same kind of future? You know, in the course of the 10 years, at least related to Katrina, strong federal local coordination around criminal justice reform, which was a major partnership with DOJ and that community, in rebuilding the healthcare system, which got destroyed after the storm, and HHS worked very closely now in helping to implement one of the most creative community clinics networks there. Um, the housing recovery, obviously, the money being spent down to rebuild the homes. The coastal investments was very much federally driven to coordinate those investments into those communities. But I'd say two things, Fred, on this one. One is I think everyone's aware now that the dollars that were spent in Katrina are now winding down rapidly. And so when we think about the challenges going forward for this community, it's going to be less dependent on federal dollars, which is true for most most U.S. cities. There's just not a lot of federal resources sitting around. And for that reason, the I think the big innovations, the big policies, the big strategies are going to come from other philanthropic, civic business collaborations in that community. It's why Rockefeller Foundation is down there and has picked New Orleans to be one of its 100 resilient cities. Um, It is a site for an Aspen workforce strategy. It is, and I could name more, there's just a lot of partnerships right now to really help prepare the workforce there for the jobs of the future uh, support the entrepreneurship com- community that's emerging and, and really focus on that resilience and st- sustainability. Now, I know uh, what happened and what has happened in New Orleans is a, is a case study in just disaster preparedness, but we're, we're looking beyond that now. And I know other cities are probably, especially coastal cities, have looked at the experience of New Orleans in terms of how they prepare for future, say, hurricanes or other natural disasters. But your perspective uh, is is much more forward-looking in, in the sense of, as you've been talking about, opportunity, job, collaboration, inclusiveness. What lessons, if any, do you think other um, metropolitan areas around the country, even around the world, um, are or can take from the New Orleans experience? It's a great question for a couple of reasons. Um, one is every community around the country is going to at one point be hit by some crisis in whatever form, environmental, economic, um, industry. So adaptation, being able to respond, is really important. I think the second reason why that's important is because the challenges that New Orleans is experiencing today is very similar to what we're seeing in cities across the country. This economic recovery is actually not lifting all boats nationally. Uh, Half of U.S. metropolitan areas have yet to restore the jobs they've lost, 
labor force participation rates in U.S. metros are l- lower than they were, were before the storm, um, or lower before the, than before the recession. Poverty has not only risen just in New Orleans, but it's risen in every community around the country. It is higher today than it was before the recession. And so this national conversation about how we grow with opportunity is really the challenge of the day in almost is the conversation we're having in most cities. So I think that what people can learn from New Orleans is that even though New Orleans benefited from an influx of government resources, it was really the residents and nonprofits in the community that really shaped those investments in a way that led to these reforms. Uh, because if you recall, in the both Mayor Nagan was not necessarily the best organizer of the response uh, immediately after the storm. It re- ended up being a highly dependent on civic and citizen action. And I think that some of the positive changes we're seeing is a result of not government action, but local ability to work together to get things done. And that's what it ultimately comes down to is that creativity, that cohesion, um, that collaboration that creates resilience in many places. I'm going to uh, pick up this Mardi Gras throw here and just shake it one more time before I ask you uh, as, as we're closing here. And I want to describe it real quick. It's, it's tiny blue uh, high-heeled slippers in a bracelet. Um, and it, it sounds to me that despite um, all of the continuing issues in this urban area that it shares with plenty of other urban areas around the country, it sounds to me like you are hopeful, ultimately, about the future of New Orleans and the direction it's going. Would you say that's true? I am hopeful. And I'm hopeful, one, because the data center, our partner in New Orleans, has more capacity today than it did did 10 years ago. And with that capacity, they have put out so much analysis um, to to inform decision-making. So when I go into New Orleans now, everyone is informed, from the political class to the nonprofits to the philanthropic community. Everyone is aware of how New Orleans is doing. And there almost is a shared narrative about the community. That sense of um, unity is really important so you can harness everyone's energies towards problems or challenges. So I feel that this city is very aware of itself. It is working closer together than it had been before the storm. There are so many innovations, initiatives underway. You know, my hope is that all those things will be channeled in a positive way so that we can start to see some numbers really change in their favor over time. Well, I hope it would be appropriate then to to exclaim with the traditional Mardi Gras greeting, if I may, uh, la zée le bon temps brûlé. Um, Amy, thank you very much for joining me today. And again, I'm excited that uh, you're the guest on this 50th uh, episode of the Brookings Cafeteria Podcast. And thanks for making New Orleans uh, also part of your story. I'm glad to. You can learn more about Amy Liu and her research on our website, brookings.edu slash metro. And in the coming weeks, look for Metro's report on the greater New Orleans region. My thanks to my producers at Colzer, our artist Jessica Pavone, and our online support team of Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abalahan. Also thanks to Thomas Young and Terrence Woodbury for helping me put this interview together. 
You can subscribe to The Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes, listen on Stitcher, and send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu.